I invite you this morning to turn with me to Romans chapter 1, Romans chapter 1, and we'll be reading verses 3 through 7. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 to 7. Paul had just mentioned the gospel of God. And regarding this gospel, he says, beginning in verse 3, concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received the grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In our introductory study of Romans last week, we identify the subject of the epistle as the gospel of God, the gospel of God. The word gospel means good news. And as we saw last time in verse 1, the gospel or good news of the saving grace of God is distinctively designated the gospel of God, which suggests that God is both the source and the subject of this gospel. We concluded last week by noting that the gospel is particularly the gospel of God. First of all, because the gospel fulfills God's promises. The gospel is the gospel of God because the gospel is a fulfillment of God's promises. Verse 2 Notice what Paul says there, the gospel which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And in our study today, we come to see, secondly, that the gospel is particularly the gospel of God as the gospel features God's Son. The gospel fulfills God's promise, verse 2 and secondly, the gospel features God's Son, verses 3 and 4. Paul says of this gospel of God, for which he was set apart, that it concerns his, that is, God's Son. We see that in the A part of verse 3. And this, we would say, is one of the clearest, most definitive statements we have in Scripture as to what the gospel is all about. The gospel concerns God's Son, and from this we see that the gospel is not a system of ethics, nor is the gospel a set of philosophical ideas. The gospel is not about human flourishing. There's a whole lot of talk today about human flourishing and the gospel having to do with human flourishing. The gospel is not about socio-political concerns. 
Yes, the gospel sure has implications for these matters, but the gospel is first and foremost about a person, namely the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as such, Paul can therefore say later down in Romans chapter 1 and verse 9, he can speak of his serving God in the gospel of his Son. Toward the close of the epistle, chapter 15 and verse 19, he speaks of his having fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. The gospel, beloved, is essentially about our Lord Jesus Christ, that we know that we're dealing with a spurious gospel. We know that we're dealing with a deficient, defective gospel. When that gospel, when that teaching, when that preaching, purporting to be the gospel, says very little of the Lord Jesus, has very little or nothing to do with Christ. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, Paul was emphatically clear as he wrote to the Corinthian Christians. Paul declared in no uncertain manner, he says this, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In fact, hear him in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4, as he spells out the crucial tenets of this gospel, placing the emphasis on Christ. Paul writes, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you have believed in vain. What is that gospel, Paul? Here's Paul, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ, here it comes, that Christ died for sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Now, as we look at our text, we discover, first of all, that with regard to the Son of God, the gospel proclaims the truth of his humanity. Notice in verse 3b, he, the Bible says, that is speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, descended from David according to the flesh. And here we have what is known as the doctrine of the incarnation. The fact that the second person of the Godhead, the one who resided with God from all eternity, known as the Word, and who himself was God, he entered, he stepped into human history, he entered this world not as a spirit, but as a human. He entered this world as an actual, a true, actual human being. And it's interesting to note that the Greek verb, which is translated descended in verse 3, literally means became, highlighting the fact that our Lord Jesus in time, he became what he had not been before. Literally, the text is saying he became of the seed of David. The truth is existing from all eternity. He, the divine word, John chapter 1, verse 1, in time took on human flesh, John chapter 1, verse 14, having been miraculously conceived of the Virgin Mary and born through the royal line of David, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, Luke chapter 2, and verse 11. 
And if the question is asked, why is it so important that we should stress the fact that our Lord Jesus assumed human flesh, why was it necessary for him to become human? Here's the answer. It was necessary for him to become man, for him to become human in order to reconcile us to God, because in order to reconcile us to God, he had to suffer for our sins in the flesh, according to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1. In order to reconcile us to God, he had to suffer in the flesh. That's what 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 1 says. He suffered in the flesh. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 tells us that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says this. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Here it comes, being put to death in the flesh. Paul informed the Colossian Christians in Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, verses 21 and 22 rather, he says that they were reconciled in Christ's body of flesh by what? His death. So we see it was absolutely necessary for the Son of God to take on human flesh, to come into this world as a human being in order that he might suffer in the flesh, in order that he might shed his blood, in order that he might be slain, in order that he might die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. But then there were other related reasons as to why it was necessary for Lord Jesus to become man, why it was necessary for him to take on human flesh. Time will not permit us to look at all these, but in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 18, the writer of Hebrews cites some reasons as to why Christ's humanity was necessary. Here's what the writer says. He says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. What's the reason? Here's what the writer says, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to slavery. The writer continues, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation that is satisfaction for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Here's what the word of God is saying there. In a nutshell, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had to become man, one, to make satisfaction for sin, to suffer for our sins in his body, in order that he might destroy him who had the power of death by his dying. He entered the realms of death. He snatched the keys of death from Satan. He delivered, therefore, those who were all their lifetime subject to the fear of death. And among other things, the writer says, he, through his flesh, through his humanity, endured temptation so that he might become for us a merciful high priest because he himself has suffered. We can therefore enter into victory over temptations. As regards God's Son, not only does the Son of God, the gospel of God proclaim the truth of his humanity, 
But second, the gospel of God affirms the truth of his divinity. The gospel of God affirms the truth of Christ's divinity. Now, by his resurrection from the dead, Romans chapter 1 verse 4 tells us that he was declared the Son of God with power. And we need to point out here that the words to be the are not in the Greek text. So the text literally reads, he was declared son of God with power. You say, why in the world would Patrick point that out? That's so pedantic. That's so trivial. Not really. When the definite article is not attending a noun. Oftentimes in the Greek, it's for a purpose. What is being done there? The writer is stressing the quality of a thing. What the writer here is therefore suggesting that he was declared son of God, not the son of God, but he was declared son of God in power. The writer is emphasizing the point that the Lord Jesus was qualitatively God's son. He was qualitatively divine. That's the idea. Now these words, he was declared son of God in power or with power, must not be taken to mean that he became the son of God upon his resurrection from the dead. It could not mean that. Why? Because the fact is he was the son of God from all eternity. He was the Son of God in his pre-incarnate state, as suggested by Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, and Philippians chapter 2 and verse 6. Philippians chapter 2, verse 6 says he was in the form of God. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4 says, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. So he was and ever was the Son of the living God. He was always God's Son. That word rendered declared here in verse 4 is from the Greek word horizo, from which we get our English word horizon. The word signifies a boundary line. And when we look way ahead into the distance, we see somewhat of a boundary line uh, at which the earth's surface and the sky appear to meet. That boundary line, the horizon as we call it, what does it do? It marks off the earth from the sky as it were. That's the idea. And through this word imagery, what the word of God is suggesting is this, that it was the resurrection of the Lord Jesus that marked him out, that created this line of demarcation whereby he was set apart, he was marked out definitively and distinctively as the divine son of God. In other words, in the most powerful, decisive way, his resurrection marked him out as being none other than the divine son of God. And we could then say that his resurrection formally, his resurrection formally declared him to be what he actually was and had been from all eternity. 
No, he did not become the son of God at his resurrection. Rather, he was formally declared as such. Why? Because the resurrection was the summit of all his miracles. The, the resurrection set him forth distinctively and definitively, conclusively and decisively as none other than the son of God. You ask the question, why does scripture stress the divinity of our Lord Jesus? Here's the point. You see, while it was necessary that he be human so that he might die for our sins, it was also necessary that he be divine, that he be the one who was himself God. Why? So that he could provide for us a perfect sacrifice to atone for the enormity of our sins. You see, only a divine savior could fully absorb and perfectly satisfy the eternal wrath of God that hung over guilty, hell-bound sinners. In other words, only Almighty God could satisfy Almighty God when it came to the satisfaction of his justice, his wrath against sin. No mere human being could have done that. Jesus Christ was a human being, but he was more than a human being. He was the divine son of God. And because of that, he could absorb in himself the full extent of God's wrath, of God's justice against our sins. Let me stop here to say this. And this is something that's well worth noting. If only Almighty God in the person of Jesus Christ could have satisfied the wrath of God, if only he could absorb the fullness of the wrath of God in himself, in his body, let me ask this question, what will it be for the sinner who refuses to embrace the Lord Jesus and ends up in hell for all eternity. Let me say this, that such a person would be in hell for all eternity. Why? They'll never be able to get out of hell. Why? Because they would not, through all their suffering, be able to atone, to be able to satisfy the fullness of the wrath of Almighty God. It will take all eternity. In fact, all eternity will not be enough for their payment of their transgressions. That's, that's an awful thought. And the good news of the gospel, my friends, is this, that we have in the Lord Jesus Christ a Savior who is both human and divine. We have in the Lord Jesus a perfect sacrifice. Why? Because it was a sacrifice of Almighty God himself. Notice then in verse 4 how that our Lord Jesus is presented as possessing the hallmarks of deity, the hallmarks of divinity. Notice what verse 4 tells us. He's the son of God in power. He's the son of God in or with power. He is invested, beloved, with all the fullness. The word of God tells us in Colossians that in him all the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily. He is the Son of God with power. He's the Son of God in power. Notice also he's identified with the spirit of holiness. Because God we know is holy. 
Jesus Christ is the very embodiment of the holiness of God. His name Jesus derives from the Hebrew Yeshua, which means Yahweh saves or God saves. He's Christ, which points to the fact that he is the divinely anointed one. He's our Lord, which implies that he's supreme and sovereign over all. He's divine. There are people in our world today, my friends, who will have nothing to do with Jesus as Savior, as we present him, as we understand him in the Bible. Why? Because as far as they are concerned, he's just another man. Islam says he is just a prophet. We say, based on the authority of God's word, that he's God manifest in the flesh. All these attributes, his resurrection confirmed him as possessing. Now the thing to note, and the thing that's most, most striking as we read the New Testament, is the vast space the word of God gives to this event of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And naturally the question is, why so? Why the stress on the resurrection of our Lord Jesus? You see, because not only is it the resurrection of our Lord Jesus that distinguishes, that distinguishes him, that marks him out, that sets him apart as the divine Son of God, but listen, had Christ not been raised from the dead, think of this, had Christ not been raised from the dead, and that would have been disastrous. It would have had disastrous implications for souls. Because here's the point. The fact is a dead Christ locked away in a grave could not save lost dying souls. There's a theologian of the mid-20th century by the name of Robert not Robert, Rudolf Bultmann. And I should not even be calling the name because I don't want to go reading Bultmann. But Rudolf Bultmann said something to this effect. That even if he, somebody were to show him the bones of Christ, show him the graves of Christ and the bones lying there, that would not disturb his faith. He still would believe in Christ. He still would believe in Christ. Let me tell you what the word of God says. That's not salvation. Because here's the point, my friends. If archaeologists today could go and dig up the bones of Jesus Christ, you know something? You and I are in big, big trouble. Big trouble. Big trouble. 1 Corinthians 15, 14, 15, and 17, Paul is emphatically clear, he's emphatically insistent that a dead Christ cannot save sinners. That crucial to the salvation of lost dead sinners is the resurrection of our Lord Jesus. Here's what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, 15, and 17. Here's what he says. Ready? If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. 
we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, here it comes, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Paul goes on to say, if in this life only we have hope, then we have all men most miserable. Here's the point, my friend. The resurrection of Christ is most crucial to the gospel because a dead Christ locked away in a tomb cannot save, has no power to save. Why? Because God is not the God of the dead. He's the God of the living. That's why he rose the Lord Jesus. He raised him from the dead. And that was precisely what Christ was by virtue of his resurrection. He is the living Savior. Only a living resurrected Christ, only a living resurrected Savior could secure for sinners a righteous standing before a holy God. In fact, here's what Paul says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He says this, showing the importance of not just the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. He says this in Romans chapter 4, verse 25. He was delivered up for our trespasses and was raised again for our justification. Indeed, Acts chapter 5, verses 30 and 31 declares that God raised him up. That is the Lord Jesus Christ, exalting him at his right hand as leader and savior. Why? To give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Our Lord Jesus can forgive sins. We can have a perfect, secure salvation in him. We can have the assurance that when we die, we'll spend eternity with God in heaven. Why? Because Jesus not only died for our sins, but he rose again from the dead. And so the glorious news of the gospel, if you look at Romans chapter 8, verse 34, the glorious news of the gospel is that as believers in Christ, you and I will never be condemned, will never be condemned. Why? Because not only did Christ die, Paul says, but more than that, he was raised and is at the right hand of God interceding for us. You're listening to this sermon today, my friends. You're not saved. You're not a Christian. I ask you the question, do you want to be saved? Do you want to be forgiven? Do you want to have the assurance of sins forgiven and life eternal? Do you want to have the assurance of spending eternity with God in heaven, of entering the joys of heaven Here's where the gospel of the resurrected Christ comes in. Ready? The importance of the resurrection. Here's what Paul says, Romans chapter 10, verse 9. How is a person saved? He says this, that if you will confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and shall believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
If you will confess with your mouth, if you will believe in your heart, that is to say you will believe sincerely that Jesus is who he claimed to be, that he not only died for sins, but that he rose again from the dead. If you place your faith, if you anchor your faith in and trust in the risen Christ, the one who died for sins, the one who is now at the right hand of God, you will be saved. Saved is what the word of God says. That's the blessing that can be yours on account of the risen Savior, the Lord Jesus. So we have looked at the designation of the gospel. The gospel is distinctively the gospel of God. The gospel is not only the gospel of God, that is to say God is the source of the gospel, but the gospel concerns the subject of God. God is also the subject of the gospel. And the gospel concerns his son. It concerns his son's humanity. It concerns his son's humanity. It concerns his son rising from the dead with power and declared to be the son of God, the bona fide savior who can save any and all who would but trust him, who would come to him in faith. So having looked at the designation of the gospel, let's consider finally the design or purpose of the gospel. The design or purpose of the gospel. And we see that in verses 5 through 7. Let's consider first of all verse 5. Through Christ, Paul says, we have received grace and apostleship. What's the purpose, Paul? What's the design? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. In a nutshell, Paul is saying here that he and his colleagues were endowed with the grace of God. And he doesn't define the grace of God. So we could think of the grace of God in these three respects. He was endowed, number one, with the saving grace of God. That would be basic. He was endowed with the sanctifying grace of God. And most certainly, he was endowed with the serving grace of God, the enabling power of God to serve him. He says, in addition, they were called apostles and the purpose for which they were graced, the purpose for which they were called apostles, he says this, to bring about the obedience of faith. You'll find in Romans chapter 16, verses 25-26, Paul again cites the aim of the gospel, the aim of gospel preaching as that of bringing about the obedience of faith. So twice he uses this expression, the obedience of faith. The gospel is designed to bring about the obedience of faith. But we have to ask the question, what does Paul mean when he speaks of the obedience of faith. What is this obedience of faith? You know, Bible teachers have written at length, and they have taught at at length a great deal on this phrase, the obedience of faith. And for some, to use the words obedience and faith in the same sentence is to invite, as they see it, a distortion of the gospel of salvation by faith alone, in Christ alone. In the minds of many, when we, talk, when we use the word obedience in relation to the gospel, when we use obedience 
in relation to the word faith. The word obedience in that context smacks of legalism. It smacks of salvation by works. So that obedience is seen to be at odds with the gospel. Obedience is seen to be at odds with faith in Jesus Christ. Let me say this. It's interesting to note as we look throughout the New Testament that the Bible, in fact, speaks of the gospel and it speaks of faith in tandem with obedience. For instance, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 8. On repentance, sinners, Paul says, will suffer the eternal wrath of God because, why? Because they do not obey the gospel of God, of our Lord Jesus. In 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter likewise mentions the unspeakable wrath of God, the unspeakable judgment of God on those who do not obey the gospel of God. And then, of course, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 teaches this. Here's what Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 says. It says this, that Christ became the source of eternal salvation to all who what? Obey him. Now with that said, let's be clear on this. Scripture is very clear that salvation is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by his mercy, by his grace. We see that in Titus chapter 3 verse 5. We see that in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, so that in no way are we saved by our obedience. We are not saved by our obedience. The, the phrase obedience of faith then must mean that that obedience that derives from faith, that obedience that is brought about by faith. And implicitly, the accent then is on what? Faith. But note this. While the accent is on faith, do you notice what Paul is doing here? Do you notice what the writer is doing here? What the Word of God is doing here? The Word of God is implicitly suggesting that while faith is central to salvation, while faith is a crucial factor in salvation, such faith necessarily works itself out in obedience to the will and word of God. To be clear once again, it is not that we are saved, watch this, it's not that we are saved by faith plus obedience. The moment we add anything to faith, we are in big trouble. It is faith alone in Christ alone. But here's the point, it is not that we are saved by faith and obedience, but we are saved by faith that works. We are not saved by faith and obedience, but we are saved by faith that obeys. That's the idea. Now, in this regard, we see that from the biblical standpoint, then there's no antithesis. There's no contradiction between what? Faith and obedience. In fact, read Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 8. The Bible tells us that Abraham, when he was called to go to a place which he should have to receive for an inheritance, he went out, he obeyed, he obeyed. Faith and obedience. 
And so in Romans chapter 10, verse 16, if you'll make a note of this scripture, and if you'll glance at this scripture, in Romans 10 and verse 16, not only does Paul speak of obeying the gospel, but right in that very verse, he links faith with what? Obedience. And here in Romans chapter 1, verse 5 then, when Paul speaks of his task of bringing about obedience to bringing about the obedience of faith, he's therefore saying this. What is the design of the gospel? The design of the gospel, first of all, is to generate living, active, saving faith in Christ. The purpose of the gospel, beloved, the purpose of the gospel, friends, is to bring about faith in Christ, but a certain kind of faith. It is to bring about, it is to generate a living, saving faith. What does that save, living, saving faith look like? It is a faith that surrenders to God, that submits to the will and word of God. It is a faith that obeys God in all things. By which Paul is implying then this, that true saving faith in Christ will of necessity be evidenced by the fruit of obedience to the will of God. By what he speaks of in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, as the work of faith, which for the Thessalonian converts was evidenced, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, their work of faith was evidenced by their turning to God from idols to serve the true and living God. And so the bottom line is this, that true saving faith, here's the point, true saving faith is not mere intellectual ascent to a body of doctrines. One could believe in the fact that Jesus died, one could believe in his resurrection, but here's, my friend, here's, here's the truth, we are not saved by giving mere mental assent to that body of truth. At the end of the day, the faith that saves is a faith that commits itself to the Lord Jesus in trust in, and in obedience to his will. And this is what should inform our evangelism, our presentation of the gospel. This is what we should be telling people as we proclaim the gospel, as we witness that the whole matter of being saved, the whole matter of coming to Christ, concerns surrender to the Lord Jesus in faith and faithful discipleship. In fact, this was precisely what our Lord Jesus told his disciples they should do as they went out evangelizing. He says in Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He says this, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. That is why today, here's the point. Today we can have Christians who say, you know something, I'll get saved, but I won't get baptized. <laughs> I'll get saved, but later on I'll surrender to Christ's lordship. That's not salvation. The faith that saves is the faith that is faithful to the will and word of God. The faith that saves is an obedient faith. The faith that saves is a faith that works, is a faith that manifests itself in the fruits of righteousness. And so as the Bible commentator William Mounts puts it, he says this, Paul's desire was to take the gospel to the entire world. 
and see the nations turn to God in a faith that changes conduct. Any other response would be inadequate. Apart from a changed life, there is no real faith, end quote. So the design of the gospel, first of all, is to generate living, active, saving faith. Secondly, notice in verse 5c, the design of the gospel is to glorify the name of Christ. What's the whole aim of preaching the gospel? What's the whole aim of witnessing? What is the whole aim of seeking to bring people to Christ? Let me tell you what it's not. You know this very well. It is not first and foremost for our well-being. Yes, that's a part of it. God saves us from hell, but that's not the primary purpose of the gospel. The primary purpose of the gospel is not, is not, is not to increase our church membership. It is not to increase our church membership. It would be nice, but it is not the, the essential purpose for which we evangelize. We are to evangelize even if our church is not growing. The primary purpose of the gospel, my friends, is not us. The primary thrust of the gospel is not about us. It's not about our concerns. And yes, even though the gospel addresses how sinners can be saved from the eternal wrath of God, here's the point, central to the purpose for which God saves sinners is the praise of his glory, Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12. So notice what our text tells us. That what's the purpose of the gospel? It is to glorify the name of Christ. Because here's what Paul says. For the sake of his name among all the nations. And then thirdly, the third design, and with this we close. Third design of the gospel is this. To create from all nations a people for Christ. To create from all nations a people for Christ. Look at verses 6 and 7. Notice verse 5d. To create a people from all the nations. Notice verse 6. To create a people that are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Notice verse 7a. To create from all nations a people who are loved by God. And to create, verse 7b, from all nations, a people he designates saints. He designates saints. Who are saints? Not those who are exceptionally outstanding Christians. A saint, according to the word of God, is first one who, on account of his faith or her faith and trust in the Lord Jesus, has been set apart by Christ to live for him. And serve him, which means that every believer, regardless of spiritual maturity, regardless of how long he or she has been a Christian, regardless of how he or she is advancing in holiness, is a saint. Because why? A saint is essentially one who has been saved and separated by God. From verses 6 and 7, we learn that the gospel by which we are saved, the gospel of Christ, is designed to make a people who belong to Christ. Here's the point where we become saved. We are no longer 
must no longer see ourselves, we, we as the owner and master of ourselves, we must see ourselves as belonging to Christ. We come under his lordship. We come under his servitude. The people we become who are loved and cherished by God, what does it mean to be saved? It means that when we become saved, we become the special recipients, the special objects of God's love. In short, the gospel of God is designed to transformingly make of the unsaved a people under the lordship and love of Christ. That in a nutshell is the purpose of the gospel, you know. The purpose of the gospel is to bring people under the lordship of Christ, that the glory of God is to make them, is to constitute them saints, a people who are separated to God, a people who belong to God for his purpose, a people who are specially loved by God, so that at the end of the day, true saving faith in the Lord Jesus leads one to cast away any notion of having the right to oneself. Here's the point. To receive Christ as Savior is to at once submit to him as Lord and as master of one's heart and life. Let me ask you this morning. Do you know him? Listening by way of Zoom, is there someone who has never surrendered to the Lord Jesus. You have never seen him for who he is. You have never come to the place where you recognize yourself a sinner in need of God's salvation. Let me say this, apart from Christ, my friends, yours is an endless eternity in hell, separated from God. But the good news of the gospel is this. If you will confess and if you will embrace the Lord Jesus, you will come to him as a broken, helpless sinner. You cast yourself at his mercy. You accept his grace. You accept the fact that he died for sins, that his death was sufficient payment for your sins. If you would believe that, if you would commit yourself to, that, to him, the word of God says you will be saved. Won't you do that even this very day? For his glory, for his name's sake. Amen.